Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. So today, government subsidies. It's interesting how we complained about paying money to the EU for that money to be spent on subsidies, some of which came back to the UK. And that was all big news because we didn't have control over where that money was going. But now Britain wants to set up its own subsidy programme and it's not even registering in the news agenda. So as the UK government published the UK subsidy control bill, what should subsidies look like? We'll look at that today on the podcast and what subsidies are needed. All of that in the next half hour on the Debunking Economics podcast with Steve Keen. I'm Phil Dobby. Welcome along. Well, you know, it's it's probably got lost in amongst all the other news about COVID and the fact that the UK is uh, about to go back to life as normal, even though the rising infection numbers are getting bigger every day. But this week, the UK government announced a new approach to subsidies to replace the approach taken by the EU. It's all down to the subsidy control bill. Now, I heard about this. No, I'm not surprised. There's not been a peep about it in the media. The description from the UK government is the subsidy control bill provides the framework for new UK-wide subsidy control regime. It's all about control uh, for everybody apart from the federal government. This regime will enable public authorities, including devolved administrations and local authorities, to deliver subsidies that are tailored and bespoke for local needs to deliver government priorities such as levelling up and achieving net zero carbon, says the description, as well as supporting the economy's recovery from COVID-19. So these are the rules set by the government by which all authorities, right down to local authorities, must adhere to if they're to give any form of subsidy to anyone. You know, you would have thought this would be something worthy of a bit of public attention, wouldn't you? But as I say, not a peep on it in the media. No public discourse whatsoever. Uh, It doesn't, of course, include the big federal-level subsidies, like how much we pay train companies or how much the UK government paid Nissan to stay in Sunderland after Brexit. That's all secret squirrel stuff. But if the Scottish government wants to spend any money whatsoever to offer a subsidy, then that needs to go onto the publicly available database, which is part of this subsidy control bill. And if you're interested in this sort of stuff, because some of them are a little bit esoteric, I have to say, uh, then you can go and look it up uh, and, and see what money is being spent where apart from, you know, the big amounts being spent by the central government. So the fact that we have subsidies at all, Steve, I mean, this is obviously this is a recognition that the economic system that Adam Smith described uh, doesn't work, does it? I mean, it doesn't look after itself, the economy. The government clearly needs to step in and spend money. Uh, this is an admission of defeat, isn't it, for pure economics? Well, you've got economic theory, uh, which, you know, which really begins not so much with Adam Smith as with the neoclassicals arguing they don't touch the price system. Uh, you know, the price, price, let the market determine prices and you'll get the best, the best of all possible worlds type outcome. And, and that is what dominates neoclassical economics in general and it therefore dominates economic policy about uh, you know, trade, trade regulations and so on. So this is just, a, a, in some ways, this, this, is, this is determined not by the needs of industry or government but by the needs of economic theory. 
because they're trying to say, well, any subsidies at all distort the market outcome. And so you, uh, the only type of subsidies they'd allow are ones where they regard the market as being um, in, insufficient in its own right. And that normally relates to the absence of property rights. So if you look at uh, the way they try to handle uh, carbon dioxide uh, generation and pollution in general, they say, well, that's an externality. Uh, the people who pollute get a benefit. They don't have to pay for the cost of the pollution. Um, so you want to penalise those. And equally, if you have, you know, the classic example they give is bee farmers. Uh, bee farmers uh, get rewarded uh, by selling the honey, but they don't get rewarded by fertilising all the plants that the bees fertilise to make the honey. And therefore, bee, uh, we don't have as many bees as we should have, and therefore subsidies will make the market system work as if uh, there was a property right for fertilisation of of plants. And mm. well, that's the sort of logic behind this whole approach to trying to control subsidies. Right. But we also know that if you didn't have subsidies, unless there were subsidies like that, which uh, which are correcting uh, things that are not accounted for in the economic system, that's what that's saying, isn't it, really? It's like we, you know, mm. that no money is exchanged in the in the fertilising of plants, so we need to give, we need to, you know, we need to ensure money does change hands to make sure that the system is balanced. But we know that even if the system was supposedly balanced like that, we'd still have poor people getting poorer, rich people getting richer, uh, old industries continuing and new industries not uh, replacing them because they can't compete against the, the power of the old industries. You know, a whole load of uh, entrenched ways the economy operates, which would be impossible to, to break through without the use of subsidies. Well, I mean, economists are always going to push back against that, neoclassical ones, obviously, not so much me, uh, because they'll, they'll say that you know, any, any market intervention has to be tested uh, to show whether it uh, generates social benefits or not. And, and this is really, I think, that law, it sounds to me, like it's been framed by a bunch of neoclassical economists saying, yeah, we want to allow subsidies, but we don't want them to distort the market system. Uh, and, mm. that's, and that's what I, m- I imagine those regulations are about. But the, 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 the problem, uh, and, and this comes down to, is it true that a free market grows faster than, a, than one that has regulations or subsidies? And the empirical data is categorical that, no, that's not true. Uh, when you look at uh, countries which have been successful in, uh, in growing uh, you know, from very underdeveloped states, places like Japan, South Korea, China, and, and so on uh, in Germany as well uh, at, at very, various stages in industrialization and for that matter America uh, what you find is that the, the the period of growth often coincides with quite strong government intervention to uh, basically when you look at national uh, laws to twist the twist the playing field in favor of local producers but to put them under pressure so that they have to uh, industrialize and develop very quickly so um, you know, I, I don't think there's any, there, there wouldn't be any awareness of the potential nation building role of, of subsidies uh, in that bill, I would expect. No. Well, I think it's, I mean, part of the bill I, I get because uh, if you click on the website for it, you can see 300 or 350 uh, subsidy projects from local authorities uh, and, uh, and national governments, like the, uh, the, for Scotland, for example where they are putting money behind projects. And you're thinking, what is the point of that? So, for example, in in, um, in North Yorkshire, there's a, a, a bit of government money that's gone into um, supporting the building of an industrial park. 
You think, well, surely the industrial park can, you know, it's going to be charging people to be there. Surely it can make its own way. And then there's an example of the Scottish government uh, giving money to WHP telecoms, which I think are basically a telecoms infrastructure provider. They're giving them £16 million. This is the Scottish government for a 4G infill programme. And they uh, they list some of the the places uh, where this infill program is operating in a little town in a little village, I should say, of Little Mill. The name says it all, doesn't it? Population of thirty five. Little Mill, yeah. Little okay. Mill. How many people? Thirty five. Uh, it's, okay. it's very close to Nan in Nansha, but now they've got a four G mobile site which uh, is being retailed through EE. There's twenty one sites so far. That's an example of mm. one of them. 16 million of government money's gone into that. You're thinking, well, you know, if it's not, in, in that case, if it's not commercially viable, sorry, people of Little Mill, move to Nern. You can get 4G coverage there. No, I'm, I'm going I'm to come out swinging for Little Mill here. Um, <laughs> I'm actually going to use an example. You and I, you, you being, being ex-Aussies, you, I hope you remember this one. Ever heard of a guy called Kerry Packer? Yes, of course. Okay, yep. okay. Okay, you know Kerry Packer died? Yeah, twice, twice. Yeah, well, his his helicopter uh, pilot gave him a uh, gave him a spare lung, didn't he? Uh, no, that's actually yeah, about two kidney, and a half sorry. times. No, he he died once on the polo field. Oh, um, right, okay. He had a heart attack. He died, and uh, he was revived because the ambulance passing that happened to oh, be the in the region at the time, yeah, yeah. had a yeah. defibrillator. So they hit yeah. him with that. He came back to life again. He, by the way, swore after there was no there was no life after death. It was just blank until he got reactivated by the um, by the the Frankenstein switch, and. Um, his response to that, and this is one, you know, sometimes your your uh, your capitalist overlords aren't entirely bad. Uh, he he then purchased a defibrillator for every ambulance in Australia, mm. uh, and the logic being that you don't know where you're going to have a heart attack. Now yeah. the same sort of thing applies to uh, you know telecommunications coverage. You don't know when you're going to run out of signal. Um, so if you say if you look at like a town of, of Mill down, is this what Down Mill fourteen day? Little Fourteen mill. hours a day, little little mill. Okay, pardon me. Maybe they worked eighteen hours a day in little mill. Um, mm. Sorry for the Monty Python reference. Um, but yeah, they, you you don't know whether you're going to need that in that location. But if you make a commercial decision about it, you don't put the cable in there because what's the point of providing you know an expensive uh, telecommunications infrastructure to to fifth to fourteen people? Um, mm. uh, but but at the same time, uh, you. you you know, p- partly the existence of that infrastructure is partly what defines a civilized society. Yeah. And an- another classic instance I remember that which very vividly with my my first wife had good friends living in the uh, the hills district of of Sydney, and uh, like the the average property there was five acres. So we're not talking poor here. But five acres means there's a large amount of land between each house. There aren't many houses. And so when both uh, Telstra and your old company, Optus, were laying, uh, competitively laying optical fiber uh, to, to, to cable TV back in those days, neither of them put it down that mm. street. Mm. No, um, they all they all competed against each other and put them down the same street. I didn't. Yeah, that's uh, right. And that yeah. was the problem. They had overbuilt absolutely. So I didn't yeah. work at. I, did, I worked at Aussie Mail. I never worked at. Oh, uh, pardon me. My worked. apologies. I'll I did apply once. With, yeah, no, I applied for a job at They weren't interested, okay. and and even though I'd actually, uh, you know, at Aussie Mail was actually selling more broadband connections than they were uh, when ah. I was marketing. But anyway, you know, their choice. But okay. <laughs> I mean, it's interesting <laughs> talking about telecommunications in Australia because 
the because um, the MBN is a great example, isn't it, of, of a subsidy? Oh, total. Well, they're not and, a subsidy. Well, I mean, but the idea was that they would build out a national network. The government would build the network, and and, and subsidies were were part of the problem with it because. They basically said, well, we want it to be the same everywhere in the country. So you pay the same for a connection in Dubbo as you would if you are in um, in Edgecliff, for example, in Sydney's east. Mm. Uh, so the cost of running the uh, the, exp- the expense of connecting people in the country was uh, was basically a- acted as a cross subsidy from people uh, in the city. So the so in effect, people in the cities were paying more for broadband than they would if it had been an open slather competition, because basically this was operating as a monopoly. Uh, and the surplus profit from that was used to cross-subsidise, providing what would be a non-commercial service in the country. So what that meant was everybody ended up with more expensive broadband than they would otherwise. And I think the comparison with that is the argument, I'm not saying whether that's right or wrong, but the comparison is with the argument that was given when we privatised the railways in the UK, because then costs, you know, exactly the same thing was happening. There was uh, uh, very efficient mainline services like up the east and west coast lines of Britain, which were very profitable, and the, those profits were used when it was all British Rail to subsidise the non-profitable services. So the amount of government subsidy was reduced, and then it was, I think it was the Thatcher government, wasn't it, surprisingly, that said, no, 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 we should... Um, we should privatise the railways uh, so that the because the, the way it should operate, those east coast and west coast main lines should be able to run as as profitable enterprises because that will uh, make them, uh, you know, be more innovative, <laughs> supposedly. <laughs> uh, uh, yeah. And the and the government will subsidise uh, those other services, and those other services, without this cost subsidy coming, may actually become more effect- effective themselves. So it's the same argument in both directions, isn't it? Uh, which is the right? Classic, which is the right one? Well, I mean, the classic. We both know the state of British Rail, and that's catastrophic. Mm. And not only is it uh, the, the worst rail service in Europe, it's owned by the national governments of the other countries in Europe, uh, yeah. which was a, a and crazy outcome. Yeah. Uh, and Hong Kong, yeah, uh, I think Singapore's in there as well. It's mm. absolutely crazy. So um, you know, the whole idea that this would improve to an improved situation uh, by you know, by you know getting rid of cross subsidies or by making the subsidies explicit uh, and allowing profitability to apply. In other words, that's, that's the, one of the greatest uh, you know, catastrophes of market-oriented planning I, th- I think you can, you can possibly come up with. Well, so the uh, Labour Party, figures from the Labour Party in, in late 2018, they said the direct subsidy of railways has increased 200% since privatisation and fares are 20% higher in real terms than they were in January 1995. So, yeah, it's, it's not working, is it? Although It, it, it failed left, right and centre. The, 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 it's, the advocates it's, say, uh, you know, the traffic numbers have doubled from 1992 to 2017. There's twice as many people on the trains, but, but perhaps that's because there's a lot many, more people many in the country. More English are there. Yeah, I mean, yeah. It, it, and, and who can't afford the, the roads. I mean, it, it, it was a classic case where market ideology ended up creating a catastrophe. And uh, and this, you know, this is why I'm, I'm always sceptical when I hear things like this law about trying to regulate subsidies because they're all based on the idea that the neoclassical vision of a competitive market is the one that, that works best. But even that, like one of the weaknesses, and we, we're, we're touching on it by just talking about Little Mill and the railways and so on, it's a, as well as being... Uh, not taking time seriously. It doesn't take space seriously either. Uh, so you don't actually look at, you know, 
what you you imagine the economy all takes place at a particular you know one little <coughs> point. Well, it doesn't. It's distributed over an enormous area. And one of the best pieces of non-conventional economics was Hotelling's little proof that if mm. you had a you know a linear beach and you had an ice cream uh, uh, distributor on that bar, on that beach, then the the best sensible location in a competitive market is for that ice cream producer to be right in the middle of the beach. Now, if you then have a second ice cream provider turning up, then for the for the people on the beach itself, you think, think, imagine they're uniformly distributed. The best location for the two ice cream outlets is one third and two thirds of the way along the beach. But if the if one of the if let's say they actually do that initially, well, the first of those providers to move right next door to the other provider gets two thirds of the market, uh, and actually more than two thirds of the market. So mm. you don't you if you let competitive behaviour occur, you'll end up with, because you have this geographic distribution of where people live and where services have to be delivered. You'll you'll end up disadvantaging society. So it's a strong even just taking into account the fact that space exists is a reason not to go along with these low, these attempts to regulate subsidies. Right. So in that example, then, if you've got one uh, ice cream provider in the middle and then another one wants to come along, should you be saying to the first one, we're going to subsidise you to move your operation uh, so that you're one third of the way along the beach so that this other person can be two thirds, so that everyone gets... Everyone Something is of that nature. The, re- the, re- the regulations matter. Uh, you know, I mean, we're, we're obviously imagining mobile stands here, but, mm. uh, but, but this, this is the, the type of... Thinking what once you take into account the existence of space, uh, what you learn in the first year of textbook should be thrown into space, and mm. and that's that's the problem. The people drafting this stuff swallow the the simplistic views of the first year economics textbook, or even worse, the second, third, and fourth year economics textbooks. And uh, when they get more, they get worse as they get older, not better. Um, and and you end up with the, something which ends ends up. You know, with things like the the, the situation with uh, the laying of optical fibre back in in Australia in the um, in the Hawke yeah. Keating days, you know, it was crazy. Well, it was the, cra- what crazy stuff, and it designed this. Huh? Yeah, and it, it said, and exactly that did what you're describing with the ice cream vendors, isn't it? They they both yeah. went next to each other rather than uh, taking yeah, you that. Yeah, you, uh, you got you got double provision where there was dense population and zero provision where there was uh, low population levels, but you wanted it throughout the entire country. But this idea of cross subsidy, though, so the MBN is an interesting example, which is uh, which is not national broadcasting in, network for those poor nas- people. Who, n- national broad uh, national broadband network. Sorry, so it's broad, an broadband. It was a, yeah, yeah, yeah. It it was an, so, yeah, I mean, very briefly, the Australian government decided, uh, and it's been through many political versions of, uh, uh, of how it was going to be delivered, but in, initially yeah. the idea was that the, uh, the government would uh, foot the bill to produce a whole new uh, optical fibre network, um, uh, fibre network from the home, into everyone's home, basically, rather mm. than the existing copper networks. And so it would be a brand new build in competition to the network that Telstra, the, the incumbent, already had. And uh, it was very expensive to do it that way. And so in the end, the, the, uh, there was a change of government. They decided they wanted a cheaper alternative and they were going to use the Telstra hey, now network. Let's, let's not let the Liberals off the hook here. Tony Abbott <laughs> decided, to, decided to massacre Kevin Rudd uh, by pushing and saying his cop- uh, fibre to the... Rather than taking optical fibre to the house, you'd take it to the street and then run cable off it. It would be faster mm. and cheaper. It's been neither. It's been a disaster all the way well, through. Uh, very expensive and, and, and very slow is the, is, very is the upshot. Very slow, yeah. And, and, and this is, again, this is where I have a certain sympathy for the attitude that economists have towards politicians. Don't let politicians get their hands on the, 
on on the you know you know the the, the purse strings because they'll use it to pork barrel. Well, mm. that's been absolutely true. But the trouble is, the greatest examples of it have in fact been the ones who claim to be market advocates, the so-called liberals in Australia and the conservatives in in the UK, and for that matter, the Republicans in America. So the you know the the the, the ones saying don't let it, uh, we shouldn't let this happen, are the ones who actually end up doing it. But yeah, uh, yeah there but, is a reason okay. to control. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Aside from all of that, just the just mm. the idea, just looking at the idea, irrespective of how it was developed yeah. and uh, you know the efficiencies or otherwise in which it was implemented, there is another way, isn't there, where you could actually say because because what actually happened was in the end they did say, well, okay, we, we're not going to be a monopoly. We will allow other providers in, but if those other providers want to uh, deliver broadband in the cities then they are going to have to pay, in effect, a tax because we are we are cost-subsidising people in the country to get their more expensive connections. So if you just want to do the low-hanging fruit, then you're going to have to pay that cost subsidy. And it was something like £5 per connection, or $5, I should say, per connection mm-hmm. per month, mm-hmm. which added a lot to the, uh, to the, you know, had to be passed on to the consumer, which made it very mm-hmm. expensive for everybody. There was another argument from an economist, I'm interested to see what you think about this at the time, saying, well, actually, wouldn't it be smarter to say that it's open, you know, we'll we'll allow competition? Because there is an argument to say you can have infrastructure competition. It's worked pretty well in the UK, for example. Mm -hmm. It doesn't work so well when you get into, you know, into regional areas in Australia, obviously. But to say, if you want to roll out there and, you know, carry the extra cost, rather than giving a subsidy to the company, we'll give the subsidies to the consumer, so we'll say to the consumer, if you want, if you want to get broadband, here's a broadband grant, and you can use that to buy from whoever you want. So the so the so the subsidy is passed through the consumer, and you allow companies to to operate more efficiently. That way, you get over the issue about companies perhaps saying, oh, "I've got a government subsidy now, uh, pressure's off us. We don't need to be quite as efficient as we would if we're working in a pure free market." Yeah, and and that's that, that's quite reasonable. And I think you can also like one of my favourite examples of. Uh, of, of a good meld of government regulation with pri- the private sector uh, was South Korea's telecommunications rollout. I think I've told mm. the story before, but it's still one I find so yeah. amusing. I can still see it happening. I, uh, the, 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 the leader of the Communist Party of South Korea became interested in my work on Marx and came out to spend six months with me back when I was working at University of Western Sydney. And, you know, he, he was a classic Stalinist type, you know, not a bad guy, but, oh, my God, was, you know, I'd, I'd seen those personalities in public bureaus before. Anyway, uh, he, he, when I got him to the house he was going, renting, uh, the first thing he did was pull out his, uh, his T45 cable, you know, the, what, is that what it's Ethernet, called? The Ethernet T4? cable. Ethernet yeah. cable, and go yeah. walking around the walls trying to find where to plug it in. I yeah. had to finally tell him there was no thing. It's, it's, we're just using telephone cable network. And he was horrified at how primitive Australia was and then told me that in South Korea, the government told the uh, industry body, this, you know, the, this is all the, you know, the, the, the names we now know as you know, Samsung and so on, uh, the, the major Korean corporations that are now global players in telecommunications, told mm. them they didn't care how they did it. But they had to provide, if they wanted to continue operating in South Korea, they had to get together and collectively make sure that every house in South Korea had an Ethernet connection for the Internet. Now, if you're wondering why Samsung has become so powerful and why South Korea became such a leading player, that's a pretty damn good example. And and that's one case where uh, there's the creative role for the state in generating, which is the sort of Miriam Mazzucato hammers on about. Uh, that, of course, the regulations like the one we're discussing probably ignore. 
So yeah, well, I mean, there's the, the so the question about developing new industries or new infrastructure, yeah. uh, but you've got the issue about picking winners, haven't you? You've got the the issue about governments picking winners. I'm not quite sure how you get over that because politicians aren't always necessarily uh, the smartest people on the planet. Well, that's that's where your you know your proposal that it comes down to maybe giving the consumer a certain amount of choice there. Um, mm. And and then having the companies compete for it. I mean, again, you know, if you look at uh, in America with the the, the space race right now, uh, the absurdity of the, the the gap between the the cost level of, of Musk's uh, Starship versions of you know, how how to get to the moon versus what's happening with the uh, what they call the ULA. Um, and the, the, the government uh, elements and then Bezos and so on. These are, uh, the, the, the government side has become classic pork barrelling and the costs of the, the, the uh, ULA, which I think is Boeing and uh, it, it might have been Bezos caught up there as well, but it's an order of magnitude higher than the cost that Musk has done. So, uh, you know, the, none of this would have happened without NASA's, you know, genuine path-breaking stuff in the 60s. Uh, to develop the technology that got America to the moon in the first instance. Um, but now the, 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 the government largest going to the corporation rather than the demand side of things, so to speak, has meant that the, the costs of the government system are order of magnitude higher than what's coming out of, come out of the private sector. It does make sense, doesn't it, to to to, uh, to try and drive demand rather than subsidise supply. I think that's where we often go wrong. So, for example, mm. getting people on bikes, you know, there's a cycle to work scheme here. So you get a subsidy. You can apply for a subsidy. If, you, if you're buying a bike and uh, you're going to cycle to work with it, I think you get uh, like half the price paid uh, by, mm. by the government or a third or, or whatever. Oh, no, you get you get it's certainly tax free anyway. But I think yeah. you also get part of the price paid for. Uh, and it would make sense with electric cars as well, with electric car subsidies wouldn't it? If you buy an electric car, we'll give you a subsidy for that too. I mean, there's this sort of, you know, you get more parking spaces, you don't pay road tax already and stuff like that. So that's a better way of changing behavior than, uh, and you'd assume that uh, as we are seeing, you know, companies are following. There's new electric car plants being developed in the UK now to meet with this demand, plus the regulation that says, well, you know, you've got to drive an electric car in a few years because we're going to stop uh, people being able to buy new uh, petrol cars. Yeah. And again, this in terms of government money creation capability, uh, you're better, uh, again, to get away from the you know, bureaucrats distorting everything argument, which is a good argument against some government activities, not all, but uh, but certainly some. Uh, mm. This is this is saying we're going to do the money creation side of things. We'll, we'll create the money that lets you, you know, buy that electric car. You decide which one to buy. Uh, and, and on it goes from there. Uh, but that's that's a useful way of getting money, government money creation into into the system rather than having, you know, bureaucrats deciding which train line gets built. Yeah. Well, I wonder in that case, if we go back to uh, to Little Mill. So I missed your Monty Python. You were talking about I Trouble I know you mill. did. I was, I was actually getting Trouble worried mill. about you, mate. Trouble, Trouble, Trouble exactly. Little Mill. Down Mill. Yeah, yeah. 14 <laughs> so, hours a day. <laughs> Yeah, I tell that to youth of today, but yeah, the, they won't uh, believe you. But a population of thirty-five people. Uh, I don't know if you had a government subsidy that said five pounds per person per month. That's sixty pounds uh, spread over the lifetime. Then maybe uh, people will be going, "Well, gee, it really is worth sticking a, a mobile phone tower in Little Mill now." So uh, you know, let's go for our life. But when it's government money just paid into stuff. Not only is the danger that companies will become less efficient because they've got this government subsidy, there's also the politics behind it. So, And there's a million and one examples of that. So Queensland taxpayers, for example, I just can't I, – I couldn't believe this at the time – subsidising the building of the, uh, the Abbott Point 
port expansion so that it could export more coal from the Galilee Basin so it could carry an extra 70 million tonnes of coal a year. Uh, You know, subsidising two issues, subsidising the coal industry... But uh, the, the government owns the ports. I mean, so maybe, the, you know, there's an argument that the, the ports should be in public hands. Uh, but, you know, to provide something for the coal industry. If the coal industry wants to export coal, surely they mm-hmm. should be paying for the port to export the coal. You know, otherwise, what are you going to do with it? I mean, this comes back to the pork barrelling stuff, which, uh, you know, mm. when we've seen maybe Australia is made of a particularly outrageous example of that, but the Tories weren't too far behind in the UK, with all their spending on uh, on the south of England, um, so so yeah, it's 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 one of these you know things where it does make sense to restrain what the government can do, uh, but let's restrain it with the knowledge of how economies actually operate, rather than having a first year economics textbook in our can uh, be in our mental hands. But it doesn't matter whether it's coal or whether it's something which is uh, you know uh, not bad for the planet. Uh, I mean, if if there was a if if Queensland made uh, enough cuddly toys to and Japan had this thing about buying Australian made cuddly toys, uh, and there was seventy million tons of cuddly toys that needed to be exported from that uh, from that port, that still wouldn't be an argument for the government uh, to be paying a subsidy. You'd be saying the cuddly toy industry needs to be, it's a cost for them of exporting. I mean, maybe they may not pay to build the port, but they'll be paying to use the port so that the port is profitable. It's a factor of them doing business. Why would the government get involved in that sort of thing? Yeah, I mean, it, 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 it comes down to how do you decide what part, where does it make sense to have government have a physical role in the economy and where does it not? And Generally speaking, I come down on the side of saying the government should be spending on large-scale infrastructure that, that everybody benefits from. So again, this is one a bit, a bit like the case the neoclassicals make themselves about the bee farmers deserving to be subsidised because the rest of us benefit from, from bees and we need more bees than you'll get if they're just getting money out of making the honey. Uh, so you want to have a good education system. You want to have a highly educated populace in general. Uh, that's one good point for the government to be uh, providing the money that enables that you want you, your transportation infrastructure is necessary the telecommunications is, is necessary health is necessary and all these things can frequently be done more effectively by a government sector than by a private sector because the government sector is simply providing providing you know, trying to provide for the need uh, what the co- private corporations will do if they get into the same industry and America of course is the classic example of this they're trying to get a profit out of it uh, so it ends up being you know, astronomically expensive to go for a trivial operation in America. It's mm. trivially expensive to go for an you know, astronomical operation uh, in countries with a decent national health service, which yeah. used to include the UK at one stage. <laughs> yeah. Well, they're still doing okay, I guess. The, it's still it's so, better, it's better, better, than the, better than the USA. And, well, like, I, 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 and the US, the cost on the total amount spent on health in the US is twice per head of population what it is in the UK and they uh, and they have a lower life expectancy. Yeah, yeah so it's a, that is a, the best argument against letting the private sector do everything is the American health system. Mm, yeah. So there's hundreds of examples of, uh, under this new scheme, hundreds of examples of existing government subsidies. These are the, But these are sort of small scale. These are sort of like implemented not by the federal government level. These are, then this law is to try and control what everyone else is doing in terms of subsidies. So local authorities and, uh, and the national governments. But their categories are, and all of these make sense, I think. So subsidies for culture or heritage, 
subsidies mm-hmm. for employment. Well, we can talk about that in a second. You know, if uh, if you've got a failing industry, do you support it uh, if, if it's creating jobs? Energy efficiency, probably a bit of a no-brainer. Environmental protection, uh, yes, so long as uh, it's not being used as an excuse not to do anything else, of course. Infrastructure, mm-hmm. which we've talked about a lot. Regional development, uh, you know, Boris Johnson's talking about levelling up. Well, he's got to start spending to do that because it's not going to happen magically by itself, is it? Because capital does accumulate in uh, in, in centres like uh, the southeast of England. Rescue aid, so that's just COVID-related. Research and the R&D. Uh, which is an interesting one. Services of public economic interest. I haven't got a clue what they mean by that. Uh, support for small business and training. So all of those sort of make sense, don't they? Uh, mm-hmm. um, but you could you, you could end up with subsidising an awful lot uh, in all of those categories. Yeah, and 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 there's a and like you know, there's there's valid reasons for each of those. I mean, I remember when you travel as much as I've done in giving all the anti-economics talks I've given around the planet, you often get little uh, cameos that come your way that are very illustrative. And I was uh, I gave a talk in in Serbia um, some time ago, and I was picked up and I think I hope I got my countries right, Croatia, I think maybe. Pardon me, picked up in in uh, in Zagreb and driven to uh, to Pula. And we went through quite a number of towns on the way, which were empty. Mm. And literally, I mean, the town was that there were no people living there anymore. And the reason was that with the opening up of the trade with the European Union, as they became part of the EU, uh, there were no local jobs and people were simply left until the stage where the villages were empty. And then you had this you know, crumbling infrastructure uh, and, and beautiful parts of the country no longer occupied. So... If that sort of effect is is going to come out of a market system which tends to concentrate economic activity and power, and you, you if you want to have a functional society, you want to have some dispersal, which used to happen in previous social systems. You know, a feudal system, of course, restricted people to particular regions. Uh, with a with all its flaws, a socialist system would not necessarily concentrate as much. Uh, well, when people are living on the land, you are naturally geographically dispersed because you've got to go where the yeah. food is. Yeah, but they they, they ultimately the, uh, if, even the, the, the food production, uh, you know, I don't know what happened to the but the villages were empty, and that was mm. you know to go go through you know quite beautiful picturesque villages all around the in, in, in the Adriatic region and find they were empty. Uh, it's a sign that something's going wrong with your economy in a place that's beautiful goes, it gets to be empty. Well, let's, let's save the best to last. Uh, <laughs> the, common agri- the common agricultural policy. Mm. I mean, I don't know what your thoughts were. It was designed to subsidise farmers. The argument from the EU was that uh, despite the importance of food production, these are their words, farmers' income is around 40% lower compared to non-agricultural income. Agriculture depends more on weather and climate than any other sectors. So, in other words, it's you know an uneven income for them, and there's an inevitable time gap between consumer demand and farmers being able to supply. So, growing more wheat or producing more milk inevitably takes time. So, uh, the, you know, there's the, so there was a lot of support going into into farmers, mm-hmm. uh, and yet the argument was, you know, you're giving out a lot of money to a small number of, of people. I think it's about thirty percent of all EU subsidies uh, were part of the common agricultural policy, and yet 3% of the EU population are farmers. And a lot of it went to very wealthy landowners. So the Queen and the Duke of Westminster were getting farming subsidies from the EU simply because they own so much land. Mm. So, I mean, there's uh, the idea might be sound, but the implementation was wrong because, well, it was a, bureaucrat- a bureaucracy that was doing it. 
Yeah, and uh, I mean, again, it, it's it, it, you're trying to push against the idiosyncrasies of capitalism uh, all the way through. At the same time, uh, you might complain about the farmers, but if the food isn't produced, that's the end of the economy, and and mm. that's one of these these elements that. Uh, the market system doesn't necessarily reward the people who are actually the genuine essential workers. We're seeing that during COVID right now. Um, and it, it happens in a, in a systemic way that, uh, you know, you, you might think you're paying too much for your food, but you're lucky you've got it. And, um, yeah, I mean, I... I, 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 I don't know how you, control, how you control the... How do you control the size of it, though? And that is the other issue with subsidies, isn't it? Because, I mean, part of it was, well, OK, if you produce too much butter or milk... Well, maybe not milk because it's so perishable. But if you produce more of a crop this year because next year might not be so good, then we will we'll pay you for that for that overproduction. And that was one of the arguments, wasn't it, against the, the common agricultural policy. It, in, it encouraged overproduction. And, you know, in the early years, we were hearing all these talk, all that butter talk. Mountains of, and butter so mountains yeah. and milk lakes and mm. all that, yeah. yeah I don't know how you fix that, though. We're not saying it's, it's easy, but you've, you've got to be aware of the idiosyncrasies of a market economy, and one of them is what it does in terms of uh, spatial distribution of income and economic activity, and, uh, and, and also concentration of power. Those big landowners, you know, came about because it was profitable. I'm sure the Queen wasn't buying the land because it was unprofitable. Um, and, and the same for those gigantic uh, agribusiness uh, companies in, in Europe. So you, you have to have some, some element of countervailing power, uh, a force against the economic might in a capitalist economy. And that's you know, partially what, you know, as poorly as it was done, the common agricultural policy is supposed to achieve, but it ended up rewarding the, the oligarchs rather than, um, rewarding, uh, than, than, make, than compensating the poor. Well, it's going to be interesting to see, isn't it? I think you made the point that a lot of it is related to spatial distribution, isn't it? Mm. And uh, and uh, one of the big things that Boris Johnson's saying is he's going to level up the economy. It's going to be interesting to see how he thinks he can do that without spending a lot of money in the form of subsidies to uh, to try and uh, encourage growth in these areas. Uh, mm. Yeah, it's going to be a real test. I've got to watch Boris Johnson again, have I? <laughs> You've got to watch him change his economic spots quite markedly, I think. Anyway, we'll leave it there for now. Good to talk. Look, next week, uh, something that you often talk about is uh, economics and thermodynamics. And, uh, you know, we need more of it in economic theory. Uh, I, I just want to understand what's in your head on that. So we'll do that next week. Good to talk, Ooh, That's That's going to be a complicated one. We'll see how we go. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Okay. Catch you next week. Okay, bye. And uh, Boris Johnson announced yesterday what was going to happen to level up the UK economy. Uh, he was in Coventry. He announced a white paper. Uh, so another delaying tactic while he tries to figure out what the hell he does to deliver on his election promises to try and make sure that everyone is equally as well off. He says there should be opportunity for everyone, irrespective of where they are. But he's not really quite sure how he's going to do that. He said he's open to ideas. Email him, he even said. So long as you're not from the loony left. The loony left remain pretty loony, he said. So uh, there's a clear message. If you are in regional Britain and you want government support, make sure you've got a Conservative MP. That definitely seems to be the message, doesn't it? It's more about levelling up votes than levelling up the economy, I think. He did say it was all about leadership, so presumably in that he's saying, you know, more Tory MPs in the North, then the North will somehow become better off, apparently. We'll see on that. Of course, he doesn't need to. He doesn't want to be PM for very long, does he? Because he can't afford it, uh, by all reports. So uh, he doesn't really need to deliver on anything to stay in power. He can just move on to the next train wreck. Uh, I just thought I had to say that. <laughs> That's it, just in case you thought we were politically unbiased on this podcast. That's it for this week. Back again with another one next week with Steve Keen. I'm Phil Dobby. Thanks for listening. 
Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. If you've enjoyed listening to Debunking Economics, uh, even if you haven't, you might also enjoy The Y Curve. Each week, Roger Hearing and I talk to a guest about a topic that is very much in the news that week. It's lively, it's fun, it's informative. What more could you want? So search The Y Curve in your favourite podcast app or go to ycurve.com to listen.